from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 21st. Today, Amy Klobuchar's record as a tough-on-crime prosecutor, why some Americans can't get a drug that prevents HIV, and how to survive a horror movie. Christopher Burns was a 44-year-old Black man living on Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis with his fiance and with a three or four young children. Police were called to his residence by a child who was reporting a domestic dispute. Elise Viebeck and Michelle Lee have been looking into this case of Christopher Burns. I'm Michelle Yehili. I'm a political enterprise reporter. And I'm Elise Viebeck. I'm also a political enterprise reporter. The case is from 2002, so before the Black Lives Matter movement put a national spotlight on police brutality. But even at that time, activists in Minnesota were raising the alarm. After that, police arrived, there were two officers, and they restrained Christopher Burns in a situation that later became controversial. The police said that they used a sanctioned form of chokehold on him or neck hold on him because he was violently resisting. What his fiance said was that the police restrained him with handcuffs and then proceeded to beat him and hold him by his neck in a way that fractured the cartilage in his neck. That was from a later autopsy report. Christopher Burns died at the scene. A medical examiner declared the death a homicide. But the county prosecutor at the time, she didn't want to prosecute the police officers involved. Amy Klobuchar, who's now running for president, was the county prosecutor at the time, county attorney of Hennepin County, which includes Minneapolis. And we should also note that this was the third killing of a Black person by Minneapolis police that year. So tensions were running very high. An activist said she should either bring charges or appoint a special prosecutor who could handle the case in a way that these activists believe would be more neutral. And she chose to hand the decision to a grand jury, which was very typical for the time across Minnesota and across the United States. And the grand jury declined to indict the officers. Um, there was not a single effort to prosecute that case whatsoever. One of the activists who we spoke with was a woman named Michelle Gross, who runs a local activist group in the Twin Cities called Communities United Against Police Brutality. We had numerous protests. We were going down to City Hall. We were even doing sit-ins, you know, in the government center where Amy Klobuchar's office was, basically saying, you have to do something about these out-of-control police. And nothing. She made no efforts whatsoever. She was one of the people on the front lines of this debate in that area. She was one of the people who looks back on that time and says there were 40 police-involved killings during Amy Klobuchar's tenure and that Amy Klobuchar did not prosecute any of the police officers involved in those killings. Not even a peep from Amy Klobuchar about trying to prosecute these cops. Not even an attempt in any way to do it. We, as The Post, went through old news clippings and newspaper archives and found that there were at least two dozen of those cases that we could verify ourselves. So there were many cases that Michelle Gross and others were watching at the time in which Amy Klobuchar declined to bring charges. And what did Amy Klobuchar say about that case at the time? She didn't say much. 
She didn't say much, no. She was never on the record, as far as we can tell, about that single case. It was so common for county attorneys to hand decisions like this to the grand jury that, in fact, it was not newsworthy at the time. We know now that it's much more controversial. And what does she say about it now? That's the one regret that she says she has from her time as Hennepin County attorney. She said she wishes that she took more, quote, individual responsibility, is what she told us during our interview. As far as we know, she hasn't had to address this directly or at length. So you all have been reporting on Amy Klobuchar's career as a county prosecutor and what she was like back then. What did you find out? Amy Klobuchar is originally from that area. She grew up the daughter of a very prominent columnist for the state. Her first successful run for public office was in 1998. It was the last time she faced a competitive election. She was elected by a very small margin by promising a tough-on-crime approach. This was after years of terrible violence across the country, including in Minnesota. Amy Klobuchar, who was 38 when she launched her campaign, was a corporate attorney and had done some public interest work, but was pitching herself essentially as someone who could help address these trends. And a lot of the policies that she pushed were really in vogue at the time. Based on the research that they had, there was a real sense that you can incarcerate your way out of the crime wave. There was a crackdown on lesser crimes, like property crimes. She fully embraced the broken window theory that is now extremely controversial. The idea that you should arrest people on smaller crimes because it prevents them from committing bigger crimes. Exactly. And you can see this in her record. Our overriding goal is to see that justice is done, protecting the rights and the safety of the people in our local communities. She went after lesser crimes like graffiti, vandalism. She tacked on some of these property crimes to categorize people as career offenders, which means they had five previous felony convictions, which would land them in prison for longer sentences. When I talk about crime with people in the neighborhoods in Minneapolis and in our suburban areas, they say to me that they don't care who prosecutes a crime, whether it be the city attorney or the county attorney or the attorney general or the U.S. attorney. They just want us to get the job done. Well, let me ask this. You say that these kinds of policies were pretty widespread among prosecutors at the time. At that time, were there other people who were pushing back against this and saying, no, this is wrong? There were. And there are a handful of local activists who told us that at the time they were staging protest rallies. uh, They were writing letters, making phone calls. We think that those voices were perhaps fairly small, but persistent, certainly. And Amy Klobuchar would have been aware of what they also wanted. But she did go with kind of the mainstream practice at the time. One of the other things that we looked into and we studied was the profound racial disparity in Minnesota's criminal justice system at the time. It really had one of the country's worst disparities of black to white incarceration. Another interesting context here is that because the murder rate was so high, because there was a lot of crime in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities area, a lot of people in the community did want some sort of a crackdown. Maybe not necessarily to the extent that Amy Klobuchar did, but there was a real desperation that they wanted to see some sort of accountability for the murders that were taking place, a lot of the graffiti and vandalism that they were seeing. 
And what does she say about this now? Like, does she recognize the way that her own policies, it seems, contributed to mass incarceration of Black people and and the real disparity in Black people ending up in prison? We should also start by saying that this is a point that is hotly debated. The idea of broken windows and tough-on-crime philosophy, academics have found to have mixed results, and many people do believe that it contributed to mass incarceration. In our interview with her, Amy Klobuchar did not disown that part of her record. She stood by it, and she felt that critics were essentially overstating the ill effects, the negative effects of her policies on the Black community. Uh, She says that uh, she was responding to what members of the community wanted at the time, including Black families who had lost children to violence in the streets or by guns. She feels like she was being responsive and that fundamentally she was doing the right thing. She said that she broadly sympathizes that there is racism in the criminal justice system, that she believes that there are people who are disproportionately affected by incarceration, by certain policies, but she didn't actually connect directly with these concerns that the activists raised. What are her policies on criminal justice now as she's running for president? We know that criminal justice and debates over racial disparities in the justice system are going to be a major issue in the primary. Amy Klobuchar has said that she was an original co-sponsor of the First Step Act, which was the major criminal justice reform law uh, trying to reduce recidivism that was implemented at the end of last year, 2018. She has said that on behalf of the Black community, she's fought for things like voting rights, She doesn't have the most extensive record on this issue. One thing we should say, which is a little more favorable to her from the point of view of activists, is that she has in the last couple of days come out in favor of some form of reparations for the black community as redress for slavery and for discrimination. That happened, uh, in fact, in advance of our story publishing. She joined people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris in supporting that. Even when you talk to the defenders in her state, the defenders among the Black community, they will tell us that she's not hurt them necessarily in, in, as a senator. She's shown up at events. She's been receptive to them, that she'll hear them out when they say things. But that's kind of what you do as a senator. You show up and you say hello and you try to talk to folks. And when you ask them, did she prioritize your concerns, they kind of say no. Do you have a sense that she sees this as a problem for her going into her campaign? I think that Amy Klobuchar is a smart politician and knows that, at least in a practical sense, she needs to appeal to a wider cross-section of people than she did as senator or even as county attorney in Minnesota, which is one of the country's widest states. I also feel like Senator Klobuchar is in an interesting spot. Because there are other people in this campaign who also have to account for their previous decisions on criminal justice. Kamala Harris, who was also a prosecutor in the past, she's talked about this. If Joe Biden ends up running, there are a lot of decisions that he made as a senator regarding criminal justice that he's going to have to talk about. And and this was an issue in 2016 with Hillary Clinton as well. But for Amy Klobuchar, it seems that She is really angling to be the centrist candidate and maybe trying to appeal to a swath of people who still appreciate her tough on crime approach. And so it seems like she can't really completely 
apologize for what she did in the past because that is part of who she's trying to make herself out to be now. And that is the balancing act of Amy Klobuchar. She is eager to paint herself as a centrist who could win the Midwestern Democrats, the moderate Democrats over, perhaps even convince those who voted for President Trump in 2016. Constituents are really going to want to know specific plans, specific ideas, and a real reckoning of her past record on this issue. One of the things that we've talked about is the idea that, frankly, is Amy Klobuchar woke enough to be the Democratic nominee for president. We see her rivals, many of them running as quickly as they can to the left to appeal to the progressive activist base. And she has taken a slightly different tact on this. It's a great question of whether she has more than a general election strategy. Does she have a primary strategy too, where she needs to appeal to more liberals? We'll have to see. Elise Viebeck and Michelle Lee are investigative reporters for The Post. Many people who have tuned out to HIV as sort of an epidemic from 10 or 20 years ago don't realize the progress that has been made in the last five to seven to eight years and why it now seems possible to end transmission of HIV, at least here in the United States. I'm Lenny Bernstein, and I'm a health and medicine reporter for The Post. There has been huge progress in fighting HIV and AIDS, especially here in the U.S., but there are still communities that are enormously affected by the disease. HIV is now largely a disease of Black and Latino men who sleep with other men they account for something close to two-thirds of the new diagnoses every year. So where you find those populations is where you're going to find what they're now calling HIV hotspots. And the government is endeavoring to put out the fire in those hotspots. That's the Trump strategy. A big part of that strategy involves a drug called PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's sold under the brand name Truvada. PrEP is revolutionary. It is a medication that has changed the face of HIV and AIDS. I'm on the pill. I'm on the pill. I'm on the pill. I'm on the pill, too. But it's not birth control. It's Truvada for PrEP, a once-daily prescription medicine for adults that, when taken every day, along with using safer sex practices, can help lower my chances of getting HIV through sex. I use condoms. PrEP is extraordinarily effective, if you can get it. Because... Even though HIV transmissions have basically been wiped out in places like San Francisco, that's not true everywhere. Southern states account for more than half of new HIV cases in the U.S., and a lot of those communities are essentially PrEP deserts, places where, for a number of reasons, PrEP is difficult to get a hold of. In rural areas like Mississippi, which is where I went to write about it, there's a lot of lingering cultural issues. So, number one, small towns. Let's say you were not an open gay man. You're sleeping with other men and you're going into small town medical clinics. Well, chances are pretty good you might know somebody in that medical clinic and therefore be unable to use it because they would wonder why you are picking up a prescription for PrEP. There's a lot of racial bias still in the Deep South 
to African-American men who sleep with other men. And then there's just the whole access to care issue in the South. It is unfortunately true that poor and rural populations have much less access to medical care in general than we do in the urban North. And that makes life difficult as well. So you went to Jackson, Mississippi to talk to some of the people who are either on PrEP but have a hard time getting hold of it or have thought about using PrEP but aren't using it because they don't have access to it. Right. We focused on two guys, and they were very different. One is an openly gay white man from a very tiny town who drives two to three hours to Jackson because this is essentially the only health clinic in the state that gets it and makes his life sort of easier in terms of getting the prescriptions, paying for the prescriptions, being understood by the people who work there is a big thing for folks. You know, imagine the difference between talking to your, you know, 75-year-old primary care doc in a tiny town of 500 folks and going to a health clinic where everybody is similarly situated and the nurse practitioners and the nurses and the doctors all kind of get what your life is like. That's a two to three hour drive for him. Yeah, yeah. Just to refill his prescription someplace where people are able and willing to do that for him? Yes, it is. Now, he could get his drugs about 15 miles from home in another town. He could order them a day in advance and go down there and pick them up, this fellow Robert Rowland. But he chooses not to because, like I was saying, the care providers at Open Arms kind of understand him and his situation. They help him with the paperwork he has to do to get his prep paid for by the drug company. And they ask the right questions. You know, there's a barrier right now between primary care docs and a lot of folks in that the docs don't really want to bring up very detailed, intimate sexual questions with the patients there's no problem with that at Open Arms. We sat in, and the questions, while we you know, weren't going to put them in the newspaper, they were very intimate. They were very detailed, and he told them you know, about his sexual practices. And then he talked to someone else who is not on PrEP. So we also spoke to another fellow, John Eric Nathaniel, who has been on PrEP but has been unable to stay on PrEP. And it's not that the PrEP isn't available to him, because it is. And he probably could figure out a way for it to be paid for. It's just that his life right now is just a little too disorganized. He has all these other things going on in his life. He really doesn't have a place to stay. At that time, he didn't have a job. Subsequently, we think he's gotten one. He spends a lot of time on the streets kind of cruising. He crashes at people's houses. He's on a whole bunch of other medications. And when you put the list of challenges that John Eric faces on a piece of paper, staying on PrEP is kind of down lower than making sure he has his blood pressure medication, making sure he has a place to sleep that night, making sure he has food. And it's just kind of difficult. And the folks at Open Arms were trying to get him back onto a regimen. And again, you saw a lot of understanding. It wasn't like they were scolding him. They were just saying, listen, man, you've, if you're going to have sex, you need to be on this stuff. It's not that hard. We really want to help you. And you've reported that this one clinic, Open Arms in Mississippi, that 
it provides 80% of the PrEP that is given out in the state of Mississippi, which to me sounds crazy that all of this PrEP is coming from one place. It means that most of the state doesn't have easy access to it. Correct. And that's why the Trump administration is targeting rural areas of seven southern states, because they don't. Because of the factors we discussed earlier, there are barriers between doctors and patients. There's lingering cultural bias. There's racial bias. A lot of doctors haven't heard of PrEP. Well, when the CDC did a survey back in 2015, they found that a third of primary care doctors had never heard of this drug. A lot of them don't ever have to prescribe it. You know, their populations are not coming to them and saying, I'd like to go on PrEP, as populations in New York and San Francisco are. And all of these issues mean that these states in the Deep South, that their rates of HIV transmission are much higher than everywhere else in the country. Rates of HIV vary based on population, so you'll find them all over the map. But the southern states combined are responsible for more than half the new HIV diagnoses in the United States pretty much every year. And that is because of these issues. You said that the Trump administration has made it their goal to reduce HIV transmission. What are they doing or what are they at least planning to do? In his State of the Union address. In recent years, we have made remarkable progress in the fight against HIV and AIDS. The president outlined goals to reduce the transmission of HIV by 70 percent in five years. My budget will ask Democrats and Republicans to make the needed commitment to eliminate the HIV epidemic in the United States within 10 years. We have made incredible strides. Incredible. And that means really only a couple of things. You get the people who are already infected on medication, which drives their viral load down to zero, which means they cannot transmit the virus, even in unprotected sex, which is amazing when you think about the history of this epidemic. You get the people at risk of infection on PrEP, so that they can acquire it. And then you educate people about all the other issues surrounding HIV. This is actually medically very doable. The problem, as always, is going to be money. They're going to have to send lots of people, lots of prep, and lots of educators into these places to get this done. And are they doing that? Are they making plans to do that? We're at the very, very beginning of this. They put $291 million into the 2020 budget for it. That's a teeny tiny beginning of what will have to be spent. But if President Trump and subsequent administrations follow through, they will spend billions and billions of dollars doing that. And it seems like all of this is really linked with health care too, right? And access to health care. We're talking a lot now about potential cuts to Medicaid. What would that mean for the ability to get people on PrEP and to stay on PrEP? Let's say you're poor and you live in a little town of 1,000 people and there's not a health clinic for 20 miles. By definition, that limits your access to care. Now let's say you're dependent on Medicaid to pay for whatever it is you're able to get and they cut that back. That limits your access to medical care. And it just goes on and on and on. Mississippi is, if not the poorest state in the United States, one of them every year in every survey. So 
if you live there, the services that are provided by the health department are less than they are if you live in Maryland or Michigan or California. There are just all these factors that work against you getting on PrEP, staying on PrEP, and getting the care you need. And that seems somewhat ironic, right, that the Trump administration is talking about pouring a bunch of money into helping to prevent HIV transmission, but at the same time, if there are cuts to Medicaid that also, in theory, could help drive up the number of people who aren't on PrEP or who don't have access to PrEP because they don't have access to health care. Many people made that point in praising the administration for taking this on. They said, great, we are so happy that you're finally doing this, that somebody is seeing this and that you're doing this. But if you give with one hand and take away with the other, where are we going to be in 2030? Are we going to be able to accomplish the goal that you're setting out? Lenny Bernstein is a health reporter at The Post. Now, one more thing. Horror movies. They're winning awards, they're inspiring memes, they're part of the big cultural conversation, but lots of people are terrified of sitting through a movie that is supposed to scare them. There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scare of a family? One of those scary movies is Us directed by Jordan Peele, which comes out this Friday. It's about a woman who has had a traumatic experience in childhood and that continues with her. And a family that's a replica of her family shows up in the driveway of their vacation home. Where's Jason? I'm Elahe Azadi, pop culture writer for The Washington Post. Elahe will tell you that she is a huge wuss when it comes to horror movies. And that is a problem Because horror movies have reached a prestige phase, and that adds a lot of pressure to go see them. You feel like you're really missing out on understanding an aspect of our collective lives unless you watch this movie. So I talked with a lot of people who felt the same way, and they all had different strategies to cope. Some people, you know, they like to go on Wikipedia and read the entire plot. The other strategy is during the movie... You can constantly just repeat to yourself the mantra, this is just a movie, this is just a movie. One person told me that when he's very scared, he'll look on like the lower third of the screen. (laughs) And so part of the screen is just the black underneath the screen. And so it visually tells him, okay, this is just fiction. I'm just watching something. Alahe tried several of these techniques, which worked in the moment. But after seeing us, she still felt freaked out. I guess if you're a horror filmmaker, that's kind of the point. Like, you want people to have a very visceral experience that continues with them. (laughs) Elahe Azadi covers pop culture for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
If you want to support the show and the work that we do here, we have a special offer for you, our Post Reports listeners. A 50% discount on an unlimited digital subscription, which means you get access to our website and our apps for less than a dollar a week. Visit postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.